Welcome again to all you who are gathered and to all the guests who are here as well. We pray that your time with us will be a blessing, that we may be blessed through the preaching as well. And we also extend a welcome to those who are joining us through live feed. Uh, correction to the announcement this morning. Next Sunday we uh, have public profession of faith again at the 2 o'clock service for uh, Eric and for Simon. Uh, we also welcome again Pastor Scoof. We are thankful that you're here and we pray that we will be blessed in the word that you bring. Our call to worship comes from Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They can tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty and will meditate on your wonderful works. They tell of the power of your awesome works and will proclaim your great deeds. They celebrate your abundant goodness with joyful singing of your righteousness. And brothers and sisters, please rise if you're able for worship. Once again, as we worship the Lord this afternoon, we do so by first confessing our trust in the Lord our God and in his great and awesome name. So congregation, where does our hope come from? And our triune God greets us this afternoon with these words from Revelation chapter 1. Grace and peace to you from him who is and who was and who is to come. And from the spirits who are before his throne, the seven spirits who are before his throne. And from Jesus Christ, who is the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. Amen. And let us now sing as our opening song of praise as the Lord our God calls us to worship him. Psalm 86, stanzas 1 and 4.
Let's call upon the Lord our God in prayer and ask him for a blessing on the opening of his word and on this worship service. Lord God in heaven, uh, we have confessed how great your name is, that you are the Lord who made heaven and earth. You are the one who made us, who gives us health and strength and who brought us safely here to church to worship you or who allows us to worship on live stream. And we have confessed that you are great and awesome, but we are poor and needy. We need your help. We need you to rescue us, to rescue us from our sins and and all of our struggles. We need you to guard our life. We need you to renew our joy. And especially we need you to teach us, to direct us in your ways. And so as we have sung, O Lord, we we pray that it will be the one aim of our heart to revere your holy name, that that will be the purpose of our lives, not to make a name for ourselves here on earth, not not even just to to have a, a simple life or just the basic necessities, but to glorify you with our whole life, every day of our life, every moment of our day. And we do not do this on our own, especially at this, O Lord, at putting your name and your glory first. We are poor and at it, and we need your help. And so we ask that that by the worship service, this worship service, you will glorify us, but that also that you will strengthen us, especially by your word, that you will teach us and guide us by your word, which shows us and describes for us why we must serve you with all with all we have. It teaches us of all that our Lord Jesus Christ has done to save us, and it teaches us how to live our lives for your glory and thankfulness for that. And we thank you, Lord, in this service where we will see two of your covenant children profess their faith. We thank you that we can all be gathered here ready to celebrate with them. And so we thank you for all the the visitors who are amongst us, the, the family and friends and loved ones, that you will bless us all to worship you. We thank you that uh, though we might be from uh, different cities and different places, we are united in faith and in our desire to serve you alone. And may you strengthen us in that desire through this worship service. And so we ask these things not because we deserve it from you, but from our Lord Jesus Christ, who in love came to save us, your servants, from the grave and did so by going down to the grave himself and giving his life for our sins so that we truly can be yours alone and serve you truly in our whole life. And so in our Savior Jesus' name we pray this. Amen. And so this afternoon, uh, this... In the earlier afternoon service, we looked at Matthew chapter 9 and 10, and, and this afternoon we move on to Matthew chapter 11. So if you have a a Bible with you, I invite you to to turn to the first book of the New Testament, Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, chapter 11. And again, we'll mostly focus on the last few verses of the chapter, verses 20 to 30, but we'll read the first 19 verses for context. In Matthew chapter 11, the last few verses, you you may recognize or remember the, the call of our Lord Jesus to, to come to him and take his yoke upon us, uh, which is a, a call that the, that the uh, 
Covenant children doing their profession of faith will have talked about and will have learned about, no doubt, in their pre-confession classes, uh, but it's also a reminder to all of us in our life of service to God. So Matthew chapter 18, we'll read the verses 1 through 19. Matthew chapter 11, sorry. When Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent words by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. And as they went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. But what shall I compare this generation? It is like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. The Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. And so far, our scripture reading. As we will see in our sermon, our Lord Jesus Christ gives uh, warnings to those who do not repent and comfort and and rest to those who do come to him in repentance and faith. And so we'll sing from Psalm 3 that has both those aspects in there. It has judgment uh, and it has comfort and rest. And so let's sing in preparation for the sermon from Psalm 3, stanzas 1, 2, and 3.
Let's continue reading from Matthew chapter 11. Our text is verses 20 through 30. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. And after we've listened to God's word being proclaimed this afternoon, we will sing in response Psalm 63, stanzas 1, 2, and 3. Beloved brothers and sisters in our Lord Jesus Christ. What is the Lord Jesus like? How would you describe him? I don't mean what does he do, but I mean his personality, his character. If you can figure out what someone is like by looking at them, always a dangerous idea, but if you can think of what how the people in history have tried to depict the Lord Jesus in religious paintings or perhaps pictures in children's Bibles. Lord Jesus is usually depicted with a, with a, a calm, friendly smile on his face. But we all know from verses in the Bible, including the first half of our text, that the Lord Jesus is not always so, so calm in his, in his life on earth. And the truth is that the Bible doesn't actually describe much about the Lord Jesus' personality. It it does describe a lot about what he does. Most of the Gospels are about that. And from what the Lord Jesus does, we can learn a lot about what he is like. For example, as he tells us, he did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And as as he lives that out, in his, in his life and in his actions, we can, we can see that to be true, that he is humble, that he is sacrificial, that he is loving and always putting others first. When he welcomes children, when he tells his disciples that he, has not, he does not call them servants, but he has called them friends, we learn that he is welcoming and friendly. But when it comes to what he is like, 
One book that I read said that verse 29 is actually the only verse in the Gospels where Jesus specifically describes what he is like, what his, what his personality is, what his character looks like. And when he describes himself, he says this. He says that he is gentle and lowly in heart. And that makes a difference what his character and personality is compared to what he does because his character and personality are what he, what he is like all the time. These things are not just something that he is like some of the time. Like we can sometimes be gentle, hopefully. We can sometimes be, be lowly in heart and, and humble. But then there are other times when we are the opposite of that, when we are, we are rough, we are mean, we are unkind. But the Lord Jesus is not like that. He, all of the time, he means, it says in verse 29, he is gentle and lowly in heart. But that, that might seem kind of strange, especially given the rest of chapter 11, where Jesus doesn't always seem gentle and lowly in heart. But he is. But his gentleness and his lowliness don't mean that he never says anything negative, that he never has a cri- critical word. In fact, his gentleness and lowliness means that he will call out sin where he sees it. Because he is gentle and lowly, though, he will welcome everyone who comes to him. But he will also warn those who refuse to come to him of the judgment that will follow if they continue in their sinful ways. And so that's the two things we'll look at this afternoon from our text. I'll summarize it with a theme taken from these verses. Come to Jesus and find rest for your souls. And we'll see, first of all, Jesus' warning from the verses 20 to 25 or so. And then Jesus' welcome from the second half. So firstly, Jesus' warning. Jesus starts off this chapter by describing how great a prophet John the Baptist is. And then he he starts to, to warn the people because of their reaction to John the Baptist. They did not accept John the Baptist. They did not listen to his warnings, to his judgments, and to his preaching. All they could do was criticize John the Baptist and find fault with how he dressed, with his personality, with what he said. But then Jesus begins to turn to the topic of how the people treated him. And then his judgments get even stronger. At the beginning of our text, Jesus, it says, begins to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And those last words of that verse remind us of a vital truth that we sometimes forget. The purpose of God's work in Christ is to bring us to repentance. We will talk about Jesus' gentleness and Jesus' lowliness, and sometimes these things are focused on as if they are everything there is to know. And we hear words, we hear comments like, like, come to Jesus however you are, whatever you have done, and he loves you. And in a sense, it is true. But Jesus' gentleness and lowliness does not exclude his warnings, and it does not exclude the need to repent. And repentance, as perhaps catechism students know know well, is to turn around. It means to turn around, to turn from sin, and to turn towards God. And we study some of Jesus' miracles this morning, and there are others in Matthew, and you can see a variety of responses as Jesus does his miracles, as we also saw earlier today. 
There are those who react with unbelief, like the Pharisees who say Jesus cast out demons by Beelzebub. There are those who react with questions. How does this man do this? There are those who react with with awe or fear. But very rarely do you find people who react to Jesus' miracles with repentance. And this is what Jesus condemns these whole cities for. Nobody is repentant. An example of this reaction could could be from Peter who once, when he was fishing, Jesus caused a miraculous catch of fish to suddenly happen. And Peter's reaction to that miracle was, depart from me, for I am a sinful man. And that's, in a sense, a strange reaction for someone to say who has just been given a massive catch of fish, a a financial windfall. But Peter saw from this miracle that Jesus was a, a divine man, that he had divine power that there was something of of God about him. And Peter realized that he was a sinful man and that as a sinful man, being too close to God and his his holiness was dangerous. It filled him with a, a sense of fear. For God is holy and hates sin. And so God's mighty works are done in order to call humankind to repentance. Jesus did not perform miracles just out of compassion, feeling sorry for those who were blind and lame and so on. Jesus definitely did not perform miracles so that people would be amazed at him or that they would follow him around. Jesus performed miracles so that people would repent. But when Peter said, depart from me for I am a sinful man, he did get something wrong because repentance does not mean going far away from, from God or Jesus, even though it might feel that way sometimes. We feel sinful. We want to get far away from God. We, we don't dare to, to pray to God when we feel especially sinful, for example. But repentance actually shows us that we need to come to Jesus. Yes, of our sins, we are not worthy to be near him. But Jesus is the only way to, to get rid of our sins, to become worthy again. And so Jesus came to take our sins away, to make us worthy to come to God. And so godly repentance is to to depart from our sins, to flee from sins, to stop sinning, and to come to Jesus instead. And unlike Peter, Chorazin and Bethsaida, two cities who Jesus probably uses as examples, he's probably intending this for, for more cities, they weren't changed by Jesus' miracles. But Jesus says some other cities would have been. Tyre and Sidon, he says, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes if I had done these works there. And these are, this is an expression of repentance. If, if you're feeling especially sad or repentant in those days, you would wear sackcloth, just a, a cheap, uncomfortable material. And you would dirty your, your face and your body by sprinkling ashes on your, on your head. And Jesus is making a, a shocking statement here. Because Tyre and Sidon were pagan cities. They, they didn't serve God, and the Jews would have known that. But Tyre and Sidon were also famous or infamous in the Old Testament. They were, their paganism and their unbelief was so bad, they were often specifically called out by God in the various prophets that they would be especially judged by God because of their wickedness. And yet Jesus says these especially pagan cities, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for them than for you Jewish cities or you Jews. And these verses suggest that there will be greater and lesser punishments in hell when it comes to the final judgment. 
pagans who, who die without ever hearing about Jesus and knowing about him will be better off than those who have heard about Jesus and yet have rejected him. On the other hand, though, it's not much comfort because the Bible describes hell as a terrible torment for everyone who experiences it, pagan or rebellious, rebellious Christian or once was a Christian. And so Jesus' words there are a call to bring every pagan, but especially every hypocrite, to their knees in repentance. False Christianity is worse than paganism, and the final judgment will be the proof of it. And Jesus also extends this warning to Capernaum. In fact, Jesus, he says he has done more miracles in Capernaum than anywhere else. It's his hometown, so to speak. And yet, even in Capernaum, there is no repentance. And Jesus' comparison in verse 23 is actually even more shocking than the, than the Tyre and Sidon one. Because he says it will be better, on the, more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. And Sodom, you may remember, was not just guilty of generally being wicked and, and paganism. Sodom was guilty of homosexuality, including rape and sexual violence. And for good reason, God raised that city to the ground. And yet, Jesus says, if the miracles that had been done in Capernaum were, were done in Sodom, it would still be here to this day. In other words, they would have repented before their city got burned to ash. And again, Jesus is not saying that it will be easy for the people of Sodom on the Day of Judgment. The people in Sodom who did not repent before they died will receive the judgment for their actions. But he is teaching here the, the vital importance of genuine repentance. On the Day of Judgment, you might point to a, a lifetime of church attendance, a, a good amount of donations, a lot of charity work, another obvious righteousness. You might try to argue with the Lord, Lord, I did profession of faith in the, in the front of a whole congregation of people. But it will help you nothing if you have not repented of your sins and trusted in Jesus for forgiveness of your sins. In fact, that sort of hypocritical life of, of external righteousness will only make it worse for you. Because unlike Sodom, you've known about Jesus, the way, the truth, and the life. And yet you've ignored him in favor of your own truth and your own way. And so you will have no life. And so Jesus' warning is a, is a stern one and a call to all of us to examine our own hearts and to make sure that we are not just living out of righteousness, living a righteous life out of, out of tradition but that we truly have repented in sorrow for our sins and that we are living a, a life of repentant obedience before God. And having taught these things, this serious repentance, Jesus then bursts out suddenly in praise to God. And his prayer is fascinating because it's a very, in a sense, human sort of prayer. It's a very humble prayer, and no doubt that's purposeful because Jesus, whenever he prays publicly, he's, he's also teaching us how to pray at the same time. So he prays to the Lord God how we ought to pray as, as human beings. And he also prays in, out of his human nature. And he praises God the Father who is the Lord of heaven and earth. 
And so his point is that God is the sovereign creator of, of all things. And in his sovereignty, Jesus says, God has hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. And we can, we can understand why Jesus would praise God for this. Because also in our, in our lives, in our day and age, when, when someone is a very proud person and they, and they get shown to be foolish and proud, then we get a sense of satisfaction out of that. When someone who considers themselves extremely wise and, and likes to put themselves, give themselves airs and put themselves above other people, when, when they get brought down, then we all, we all kind of enjoy that in a sense. And, and God works the same way. When God sees the, the proud and people exalt themselves at the expense of others, God works to, to one day bring such people down. And one way that God does this is that, that he does not deal with the proud. And, though, and he ignores those who, who make themselves wise. And he does this by acting in ways that don't make sense to proud people and those who are full of human wisdom. And, and that's the truth of God's judgment as well. It doesn't make any sense, humanly speaking. The fact that the, the very religious people of Jesus' day, that they would be brought down to Hades. The fact that a, what the world would call a good person could still be in danger of eternal judgment. That doesn't make sense. It's the opposite of what everyone around us assumes heaven is going to be like. Heaven is for the good people, right? Heaven is for the, for the, the, outwardly, the outwardly loving people. And Jesus' whole ministry, in a sense, doesn't make, make sense, humanly speaking. As we saw this, this earlier, he, he rejects fame and attention. And he willingly takes on suffering. He deliberately invites persecution and rejection from people. Above all, of course, the fact that he, he, was, he was born as a human being in order to die and to give his life for our sins. It doesn't make sense, humanly speaking, but Jesus says it, it makes sense to little children. Why? Well, God's way makes sense to children because children are trusting. Children are, are humble. Children don't count on their good deeds to, to make them, them right, to earn them anything. They simply expect what they need from their parents. Children are just simply dependent on those who are greater than them because they, they understand how small they are. And so we are called to, to come to God in repentance, but we're also called to have that childlike dependence on God. Not to raise ourselves up, not to give ourselves airs, nor to try to, to try to earn our way into God's favor, but simply to trust God and to trust our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus teaches us in our second point, and we'll see that in Jesus' welcome. So Jesus' prayer speaks about how God is sovereign creator of all things. But he goes on in verse 26 and 27 to talk about how God is also sovereign over salvation. God is the one who has decided how salvation is work, how salvation works. That it is not by being religious. It's not by good works. It's by faith and trust. And God is also the one who has chosen those who will be saved. And so Verse 26 speaks of how salvation comes by God's gracious will, by God's good plan. But Jesus goes on to say that all these things, all this, this judgment and also this salvation has been handed over by God the Father to him, the Son. 
And in verse 27, Jesus stresses the, the unique personal relationship between him and the Father. He says, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father. And so Jesus and God the Father have had that unique personal relationship like, like how close a relationship is between a parent and their child, but they've had this relationship from eternity because Jesus is, is, has been God's son from eternity. And so no one, if, so Jesus knows the Father intimately and personally and perfectly, and God the Father knows Jesus so perfectly. But then Jesus goes on to say, no one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. And so Jesus and the God the Father know each other from eternity and know each other perfectly, but Jesus also says that people are invited into that personal relationship. And he will say elsewhere, meaning the same thing, that eternal life is to know the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ. And so just as Jesus has an intimate personal relationship with the Father, so we can have an intimate personal relationship with Jesus and through him with God the Father. And the only way, he says, to know the Father and to have eternal life and to find the way to heaven is to know the Son, Jesus Christ, for he reveals the Father. And Jesus makes clear again that like the Father, he is sovereign over salvation. He chooses No one knows the Father except the Son and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal Him. The Son must choose to reveal the Father to you or you will never know the Father. You will never have eternal life. And all of this talk about God's sovereignty over salvation might make it sound like salvation is is just random and, and arbitrary. If Jesus chooses to reveal the Father to you, He'll do that and you're kind of automatically saved no matter what you've done. And if he chooses not to reveal the Father to you, there's nothing you can do to be saved no matter what you do. Isn't that a bit unfair? But that's not the whole story. Yes, Jesus must reveal the Father to you if you want to be saved. But whoever comes to Jesus and wants to know the Father, Jesus will never turn away. And that's what he makes clear in verse 28 and following. After, after he says, you must come to me and I must reveal the Father to you if you want to be saved. He says, come to me, O who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So it doesn't matter in the end who you are or what you have done. If you come to Jesus, you will find what you need for salvation and eternal life. Come to me, he says, if you labor and are heavy laden. And the word labor there, it should really say weary, because it's not just talking about people who work hard, it's talking about people who are exhausted from working hard. We might think of long days of, of physical labor, that, that weariness you get from being on your feet and physically working hard all day. Or we might think of the mental weariness from, from a long emotional or mental or spiritual struggle. That sort of bone-aching weariness is what Jesus is talking about. And he talks about those who are heavy laden, those who are, who are bowed down by heavy loads. Again, we imagine people staggering under, under great physical loads, but often our loads in this life are, are emotional and, and mental and spiritual. And Jesus says, to all those who are, are weary and have run out of strength, or to all who are just burdened down, I will give you rest. Relief from your burdens, peace from your troubles and anxieties. 
And this verse adds, in a sense, to verse 25. Jesus talks there about how he's revealed these things to little children. You need to be a little child if you want to um, know God and, and understand salvation. But he also says you also need to be weary and burdened. Our natural human reaction, again, is, is the opposite. We, we naturally assume that, that God will help those who have, who have worked hard for their salvation. There's a whole saying about that, right? God helps those who help themselves. But the Bible tells us the opposite. Jesus helps those who are weary and burdened. Jesus helps those who, who have no strength to do anything. Because those who are weary and burdened, they, like little children, they understand that they can't do it on their own. Because they, they don't have the strength. Those who are at the end of their strength, they must depend on others to survive. And that's the sort of faith that Jesus calls us to. And so what kind of burdens, then, does Jesus have in mind here? And we could list all sorts of burdens that we face in life. But the context in Matthew shows us that perhaps he's thinking about two main types of burdens. Burdens of sin and, and burdens of righteousness. Every person in life is a great sinner. But not every person is weary and burdened because of their sin. But if you are, Jesus is speaking to you. And you must be if you want to come to Jesus. And so are you weary of your sins? What wicked things have you done that you'll never forget? Or are you trapped in a, in a cycle of sin? When you, you commit a sin that, that you hate, but you, you can't seem to stop yourself, and then you, you hate yourself even more for your sin, you promise never to do it again, and, and then you do it again. Or are you simply just more sinful than, than you would wish? Being a, a good Christian person, coming to church, trying to live a, a good life, yet you just you commit so many sins, more sins than a person with your church history and background should do. And you just disappoint yourself each time, each day, with your same old sins. And when we feel that way, we start to assume that Jesus wouldn't want anything to do with us. Jesus wants good, clean, righteous people, right? People that have, have gotten somewhere. People that have, have managed to, to defeat some of their sins. But Jesus is just the opposite. He calls us when we are weary and, and bowed down by our sins. When we've come to the end of our strength to fight the sins. And he says when we come to him with that weariness and that sin burden, he will give us rest. Because the only way to, to find rest, to find relief and peace from your sins is in Jesus and to come to him. He's the only way to the Father. He gave his life for your sins. He bent his back and, and took the burden of your sins on himself. And then he went to the cross and suffered the wrath of God for those sins. And so he suffers for them. And so the burden of sins is gone from you and from your account. No matter what you have done and how many times you have done it, Jesus' forgiveness is always there. And so when we come to Jesus, we find that that burden of sin and having to defeat our own sin is gone. Or do you have a burden of righteousness? If you read the Gospels, you'll find the Pharisees coming up time and time again. But we all have tendency to be Pharisees. Pharisees are people that have a long list or 
at least a list of some certain sins, certain, certain good deeds, sorry, a list of things that you have to do if, if you want to be a good Christian, if you want to be accepted in church, and you have to do these things in order to earn their favor and, and earn God's favor. And whenever you believe that you have to do any number of things in order to, for God to be pleased with you, you're laying a, a heavy burden on your shoulders. And it's worse if you, it's bad enough if you do that to yourself, but it's worse if you are like most Pharisees and then you take that burden and you also lay it on, on other people. And you say, you have to be like me and you have to do all of these things before God will accept you. It's worse because often when we do that, we, we pick sins that we're already good at, that we're already doing, and we project, we pick, we pick righteousness that we're already doing and we're pretty good at. And then we, we project it onto other people. And we say, you have to be a good Christian like me, and if you're not, God won't like you. But even if we are pretty good at these things, it's still a, a wearisome burden because whenever we count on ourselves, we're always wondering, have I done enough? What do I do now that I've failed? How how can I make up for it? And so self-righteousness in the end always turns us into hypocrites because we often, we will make sure to, to be good whenever people are watching. But we and our families will know very well that we're not anywhere near as holy as we make it out to be when no people are around. And so strict righteousness is also a, a wearisome burden when we think we can earn God's favor by our good deeds. And so if you're weary of being a hypocrite, or if you're, you're weary of not living up to some standard of righteousness that you've set for yourself or that other people have set for you, Jesus also says to you, come to me and I will give you rest. He tells us, elsewhere in Scripture, in Isaiah 55, that salvation is without money and without cost. You can't buy it and you can't earn it. You can't do anything to get to heaven, to earn God's love or favor. You simply have to obey Jesus' summons to come to him for salvation. And your soul will live forever. And so here we see a kind of contrast. Salvation is, is Jesus says twice, salvation is God's good pleasure. Salvation is him, whoever he chooses. But also salvation is a call to us. We are called to come to Christ, to trust in his promises. And we have the promise that when we do, when we believe in him, he will give us rest. And so to come to him simply means to depend on him, to believe that he washes away all the guilt and shame of the evil that we have done and our souls are washed clean in his blood. And it also means that we're trusting him to keep the law perfectly on our behalf, for we can't do it on our own. And when we come to him, Jesus says in verse 29, he says, Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And these words, after all that we've said just now, might surprise us. We might expect Jesus to say, Come to me, all who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I take your burdens, I take all of your yoke, and I leave you with, with nothing. You're, you're completely free. But he doesn't say that. He does leave us with a yoke. 
Now he makes clear that it's a light one compared with the, the yoke of self-righteousness or the yoke of trying to make up for our own sins. But it's still a yoke. So what does he mean? Does he have a shorter list of things to do compared to the Pharisees? Do we become Christian Pharisees with a different list of things? No. As he often does in Matthew, Jesus is talking here about discipleship. He's talking about following him with our life, wherever he leads us. He's talking, as we saw in our first one, he's talking about repentance. Coming to him means that we will repent of our sins, that we will be sorry for our sins, that we will turn from them, and that instead we will follow God and, and obey his commands. It doesn't start, discipleship doesn't start with a list of rules. It starts with trust and dependence. It starts with stop trusting in ourselves and our goodness, stop frantically making up for our own sins, stop trying to dig our own way out of the hole we've made in our life by our, by our wickedness. We can't get ourselves out of the rut of our sinful habits. We need to trust Jesus wholly and completely that, that simply by his work we are right with God. And in Christ alone we have everything we need for God to love us forever and to give us eternal life. And then Jesus says, having trusted in me and taken that yoke of trust and discipleship, you can learn from me. And what do we learn from him? Well, we learn from him, from his personality and from his character. He says, for I am gentle and lowly in heart. And so as we've seen earlier, Jesus is gentle and lowly in heart by nature. And we see that because despite being the king of the universe, he's come down to earth in order to save us. And he's come down to earth to serve, born into a regular family, born in a stable, talking about humble beginnings. He lived an ordinary life for 30 years, and now, now that he is doing his ministry, he's not out seeking fame or fortune. He's, he's lowly. And we've also seen how gently, and as we saw earlier, compassion, compassionate, how he deals gently and compassionately with those who are sick and sorrowful and weary and burdened. And so whether you're grieving or whether you're an outcast or whether you're a repentant Pharisee, Jesus deals gently with you with all of us. And so he calls us to be the same. How often don't, don't we, having been saved by Christ, don't we turn around and, and point with accusing fingers at other people and treat people without gentleness? But Jesus calls us not to do that, to, to learn from his gentleness and lowliness and humility, his sacrificial death and all the other love that he showed us and to go and treat others in the same way. And Jesus says when we come to him, we take that, that yoke of love and gentleness and holiness. First, we must learn to trust him and put all of our hope in him, and then we must follow him and do as he has done. As this is a call to all of us, whether we're making profession of faith this afternoon, whether we've made profession of faith many decades ago, or whether we're looking forward to it at some other point in our life. The only way to eternal life, the only way to live a life that is worth anything is to come to Jesus, to realize that we can't do it on our own. We can't live a good life on our own. We can't make up for our sins on our own. And as we remember, 
as we've come to Jesus in repentance and we remember how gently he's been treated, how full of grace and humility he is, how he, he continues to treat us with gentleness despite daily continuing in sin, we can then go out and treat others with gentleness and, and live humbly ourselves. And so Jesus can say, take this yoke upon you. And he can say that this yoke is easy and this burden is light. It is much easier than trying to, to make our way to heaven on our own, to try to earn it ourselves. In fact, it is such an easy yoke that it is God who works it in us, the ability to do so. Jesus truly has done it all for us. No sin or weakness that is still in our hearts can take us from his love. And so we, having come to him, we truly can have rest for our souls. And in our weariness, in the midst of frantically trying to get through life's struggles in our own strength, in the, in the midst of our sin and wickedness, we can come to Jesus. And he will take all of our sin and all of our weariness and all of our suffering away. And then we can take his yoke upon us, learn from his gentleness and humbleness towards others. And we will find that yoke easy. And so let us all come to Jesus and find rest for our souls. Amen. Let us now rise, if we're able to, and sing in response Psalm 63, stanzas 1, 2, and 3.
Please be seated. Our brother and sister Perrin van de Gugten and Natalie van Laar have requested permission to do profession, to make profession, public profession of their faith. And so we will do so before, together, confessing our faith. That's why you're sitting down again. Um, so we will do so using the form for public profession of faith, which you can find in the back of your books of praise, or I guess read along on the screens. Beloved in our Lord Jesus Christ, we thank the Lord, our God, for the grace given us by adopting us to be his children and receiving us into his covenant. We acknowledge his love and power by which he instills in his children the desire to publicly profess their faith in him in the presence of his holy church so that they may receive admission to the Holy Supper. And so, uh, Brother Van de Gugten and Sister Van Lark and I please ask you to come forward to answer the questions. Beloved, in our Lord Jesus Christ, since you have now come here to make this profession before God and his holy church and, to, and hereby to receive admission to the Holy Supper, we ask you to answer sincerely the following questions. First, do you wholeheartedly believe the doctrine of the word of God summarized in the confessions and taught here in this Christian church? Do you promise by the grace of God, steadfastly to continue in this doctrine, in life and death, rejecting all heresies and errors conflicting with God's word. Second, do you acknowledge God's covenant promises, which have been signified and sealed to you in your baptism? Do you truly detest and humble yourself before God because of your sins and seek your life outside of yourselves in Jesus Christ? Third, do you declare that you love the Lord God and that it is your heartfelt desire to serve him according to his word, to forsake the world, and to crucify your old nature? Fourth, do you firmly resolve to commit your whole life to the Lord's service as a living member of his church? Do you promise to submit willingly to the admonition and discipline of the church? If it should happen, and may God graciously prevent it, that you become delinquent either in doctrine or in conduct. Brother Aaron van de Gugten, what is your answer? Sister Natalie van Lara, what is your answer? After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To him be the dominion, forever and ever. Amen. And so let us all now rise and together make public profession of our Christian faith. And we will do so using the summary of the Christian faith in the Apostles' Creed as it's put to music in hymn number one.
We will praise and thank the Lord in prayer uh, along with our brother and sister, and we will also thank the Lord along with uh, two families in the congregation who have been blessed with healthy daughters this past week. Chris and Caitlin Tenbrink have been blessed with a daughter whom they named Abigail Rain, and Nick and Darcy Hedebury have been, have been blessed with a daughter who they named Raven Alina. And so we'll thank the Lord uh, along with them. Let us pray. Lord God in heaven, we praise you for your sovereign grace and your sovereign good pleasure. As we have heard from your word this afternoon, it is only those to whom whom you have chosen, and only those whom our Lord Jesus has chosen to reveal the Father, who will, who will know the Father, and who will know your Son, Jesus Christ. And so we thank you, O Lord, that in your grace and good pleasure you have revealed yourself to our brother, Perrin Van Gogten, and our sister, Natalie Van Lark. We thank you that you have brought them to, to this point in their lives, where they desire to serve you with their whole life. They desire to repent from their sins, to, to hate their sin and flee from it. And they desire to serve you with their whole life according to your word. And, that, and so they have publicly professed their faith in you in the, front, in the presence of all these witnesses. And we know that this is only your grace. O oh Lord, you have brought this faith in their hearts and you have be, that you have begun the work in their hearts as they were conceived and born and baptized. And we ask that you will bless our brother and sister as they take their place as confessing members of this church. Will you bless them to be a living member of the church, to be a support to their brothers and sisters? And will you help all of us to be a support to them? We pray that you will bless them and strengthen them by the celebration of the Lord's Supper, in which they are now able to participate, and that their faith will be strengthened by the sacrament and also by the faithful proclamation of your word each twice, each Sunday. And so we pray that you will bless our pastor, Tim Veenstra, that you will give him strength and wisdom in all that he needs as he continues to faithfully proclaim your word, and that you will bless his family as well. We also praise and thank you, O Lord, for the blessing of healthy daughters, for the blessing that you gave to Chris and, and Caitlin Timbrink with their daughter Abigail, and to Nick and Darcy Hedebury and their daughter Raven. We pray that you will bless these families and these parents, that you will continue to make all things well with mother and child and father too, and that you will give them the health and strength to be able to bring their daughters for baptism and also to, for their whole life, to faithfully raise these children, covenant children of yours in the fear of your name and that you will work in these parents and in all the parents in our midst to, despite many sins and weaknesses, to teach all that our Lord Jesus Christ has done and to also show this by their life. 
And we pray for all of us, O Lord, as we have seen, that you will bring us to repentance for our sins, that the mighty works that you have done in Jesus Christ, as we can read about in the scriptures, that, that these will cause us to, to forsake our sins and to serve and glorify you. And especially that above all, we will come to our Lord Jesus with all of our burdens, all of our weariness, all of our suffering and sorrows, even all of our sin and wickedness, all of our guilt and shame. And we know that he takes all these burdens from us as he suffered for all of our sins and washes them away completely. And he leaves us instead simply with a burden to trust him and to follow him with our whole life. A burden that is not really a burden at all, but it is a joy, a great joy, that we may live our lives out of love for Jesus Christ and out of service to you. And so we pray that all of us here this afternoon will continue to live our lives for your glory and that you will continue to work in us by your Holy Spirit so we will do so more and more, putting to death whatever sin there is in our, in our lives and that we will live a life of, of love and service for one another. All these things then we pray, if not in our own name, but in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Once again, this afternoon, the deacons request your offerings for the Foreign Students Bursary Fund as we raise money for South African brothers to study at the Canadian Reformed Theological Seminary. And afterwards, we will close by singing the hymn, Yet Not I, But Through Christ in Me.
triune God sends us back to our homes and to our lives with his blessing. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. Amen. Amen. Yeah, I was going to say, you may want to sit down. I promise not a sermon or even a lecture or anything. But uh, on behalf of council, I have a, a few things to give. You can stand, you can sit, whatever. Cool. All right. So uh, anyway, this day is, it's been a few years in coming. I think it started all the way back when you were baptized. And I think your parents, I know myself, I remember it too. As, it doesn't seem that long ago, but for yourself, maybe it, it did seem longer, but then I remember a number of those milestones, like first day of kindergarten when you were this wide-eyed, tippy-toed little girl, and the other things like grade seven, grad, grade twelve. You've been, you've grown into a, a fine young lady, and and so uh, it's wonderful also to hear you willing to profess your faith in your Savior Jesus Christ. So on behalf of Consistory, we have two books to present to you in that continuing journey of growing in your faith. One is suitably growing in the gospel by uh, Dr. Van Vliet. It will be there as a good resource as, as you grow and learn. And the second book is by Jen Wilkin, entitled Women of the Word, and it will hopefully help guide you as you do grow as a woman in the Word. So, congratulations. And then there's Perrin. Hi. So it's also been a privilege to watch you grow too, right? From when you were baptized and all those different stages in your life too and being able to uh, answer some of those easy questions and some of those difficult questions as you've grown. And yeah, it's, it's wonderful to have you here too to be able to profess your faith. And so for you also, we have that growing in the gospel so that as you continue your journey in faith, as you continue to grow, that this will be a great resource. And then we also have Gentle and Lowly which you've heard referenced again uh, this afternoon. And you heard Pastor Tim last Sunday say, if you know it really well, you'll be able to help him write some of his sermons too. So uh, on behalf of Consistory, and congratulations. <laughs> and you all have opportunity then to, I guess, congratulate them both as well here up at the front. And may our time of fellowship be blessed.